Hi there. I would like to update you on N-Square, the conference we've been talking about it on this podcast. I'm really proud of the great programming, exceptional speakers, and unbelievable excitement we generated for N-Squared. However, the raging COVID Delta variant and the uncertainty it poses on travel and safety across the nation have made us rethink whether our celebration and excitement should be put on hold. We have decided to move the meeting to February 24th, 2022, which also happens to be Steve Jobs' birthday. Steve Jobs believed in the power of technology for transforming education. He will remain the pioneer for mobile technologies for generations to come. And he has been my role model for innovation, entrepreneurship, and end-to-end integrated design. I would like to celebrate his legacy by discussing the future of education at N Squared on February 24, 2022. You can find more information about N Squared at nsquared.events. Again, that's nsquared.events. I look forward to seeing you in February. Stay safe and stay healthy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. We have an exciting and quite informative guest on the podcast. Dr. Janine Janot is an academic coach and author of The Disintegrating Student, Struggling But Smart, Falling Apart, and How to Turn It Around. She has over 25 years of experience working with children, teens, and young adults in both public and private school settings. Janine has a master's degree in school psychology from the Ohio State University and doctorate in child and development psychology from the University of Connecticut. She began teaching college psychology courses in 2010 and 2014 and founded the Balanced Student Initiative. Originally from Ohio, Janine lives in Milton, Georgia with her husband, Tom. They have three children, Ryan, Maddie, and Kat. You can learn more about them at JanineGenot.com. I will put all this in the show notes. Jadine, welcome to Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So you're a wealth of knowledge. You've written a cool book, started a great initiative called The Balanced Student. You know, it looks like a lot of this, you know, evaluation or your focus on education is based on two things from reading your bio. Number one is based on the fact that you had a master's in psychology from the Ohio State University, and also because you're a parent of three kids and you've learned a lot from it. Can you talk to us a little bit about your own personal experiences as a parent? Because I have two kids myself. Varun is 17. He's applied for colleges and waiting for admissions right now. And Veda, my daughter, is 14. And as much as I want to say I learned a lot from reading or learning about psychology or listening to podcasts. I learned a lot from my two kids. Is that your experience as well? 100%. I'm a few years ahead of you. So my youngest is a freshman in college right now, but it's not been that long since I've been there. And I think what's really interesting about why I'm even here talking to you right now, it is that parenting piece because you know, about, I guess, maybe 12 years ago now, I had the opportunity, I had been teaching preschool after being home with my kids for years and years, but my youngest started preschool. So I taught preschool while she was there. And when she went into the elementary school, I started teaching college. 
And at that particular moment, I had just come off teaching preschool. My youngest was in elementary school. My middle child was in middle school. My oldest was in high school and I was teaching college. So I had this unbelievable bird's eye view of what education looks like for our kids across the developmental lifespan of our students, which is something, you know, coming out of education as a school psychologist and also having the background in developmental psychology, I was just fascinated. But beyond my fascination was a huge concern because what I was seeing in college students, and I'm sure you've talked about this with many of your guests, is a complete overwhelm. I didn't see a lot of translation of learning from high school into their college courses. So for example, I might have students in my class who took AP psychology and really not be able to demonstrate sort of the basic knowledge they should have walked away from in that class. So I was also seeing in my children who, you know, all three of them had been identified gifted fairly early. So they were in sort of that high achieving kind of group of kids all through their education. And the stress and anxiety, depression, the suicides, all the things I was seeing Mm -hmm. just in my own children, my own community, I was just so concerned for them. So that's how I started the Balanced Student, which is student and parent coaching to kind of help Mm -hmm. figure out what's going on and help kids be more mentally well as they're trying to be academically successful. In my latest podcast with Komal Shah, she writes about this concept of being mindful. In her thesis, she talks about the reason why there's a lot of anxiety issues and, like you said, suicidal and depression issues is because we constantly push our children, not directly, at least I'm not that kind of patriarch, but there is a concept of tiger mom where say, if you don't get a plus, 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 you're a failure, or if you get 99 instead of 100, you're not as good as me. Is that the reason for some of the anxiety or depression issues? Or is there other things going on with their growth, whether it's their hormones, whether it's their relationships that also add up to that? What makes kids more susceptible to emotional and mental issues at this age? Well, that was what I was really trying to figure out. And what I learned in my coaching when I first started, I started seeing students I didn't expect to see really high achieving kids who are so overwhelmed and falling apart, just kind of hitting a wall. And that's how I ended up writing the book because I call them disintegrating students. And I think now with the pandemic, I think almost every student feels you know, like they're disintegrating to some extent. But what I'm really figuring out is what's behind our students falling apart is all the things you just said, and parents are certainly part of that. But what's at the root of it is the achievement culture. We have a high stakes, high pressure achievement culture that's ticking downward, you know, starts in preschool to some extent, but certainly by the time they're second, third grade, these kids are feeling the full force of the achievement culture, which, you know, achievement's a great thing. We all want achievement, but where the achievement culture has gone off the rails in the last several decades is we're valuing data as far as a measure of what is success. So our kids feel like data points. We're responding as parents to this achievement culture. And that's why we're like, you need to get the A, you need the 99, you need check the box, check the box, check the box. And that's how our kids are responding. 
And ultimately, it's not translating into good learning, and it's definitely translating into poor mental health outcomes. Yeah, I agree. I think, again, there's two parts to you know the question here. Again, I always like in every podcast, I try to take the one of my employees uh, talks about a pro-con, pro approach. What are the pros of this achievement and what are the cons? And you mentioned the cons, but the issue that when we were talking to Varun, he's applying to colleges right now. He already got admitted to UGA Honors and Georgia Tech. We're waiting on Stanford as of this day. But when you look at how a colleges have to admit, you know, again, there are two ways of doing it. One is purely quantitatively looking at their GPA, looking at their SAT score, ACT score, looking at the number of extracurriculars and awards they won, and based on that, make a decision, call it lazy way or inefficient, lazy way or something. But if you have to deal with 50,000 applications, there should be some measure of doing it. Or the other way is completely qualitatively take every student on his or her face and evaluating them holistically. Obviously, we all agree that the qualitative way is the right way because each person is different. They are not measured by their SAT scores or ACT scores or GPA scores. But how would a college like Stanford with 55,000 applications go about doing that? I'm not questioning it. I'm just trying to see you know, what your solution is to treat every student as a fully complete human being and not as a number. Oh, herein lies the problem, (laughs) because wouldn't that be great? And if I had the answer, oh, my goodness, I would be out there with it. The problem is it's top down. Everything has, you know, for the past several decades, you know, from politicians, corporations, money interests, employers, then the colleges are responding to that. They're trying to crank out the kinds of employees employers are going to hire and our primary education system is looking to feed the colleges what they want. So the system is just off kilter right now because how it works is you need all those things. You need the the quantitative stuff to figure all this out in the current culture that we're in. And, you know, I really don't know the solution to that, except that it has to come from the bottom up. So yeah. we need to be looking at our students, our parents, and mostly our educators, our teachers who know how to teach, but are the last people to be asked, how should we go about this? They're given practices and policies and procedures to put in place, but they're not looked at as the experts here. I feel like if we flip that, then everything would start to self-correct You right. know, by the time we get up into that because the employers aren't thrilled with what they're getting out of a lot of college graduates. You know, they're disappointed sometimes in the work ethic or the adaptability or the so-called 21st century kinds of skills that these graduates are bringing to the table. It's not what they're really had hoped for. And the colleges are feeling the same discomfort with you know, the type of high school graduates that are coming in that, you know, have to do anything to get an A or falling apart if they're, you know, have roommate issues, you know, all the things. It's not really benefiting anybody right now. That's a long way of saying I have really no idea (laughs) except, (laughs) except, you know, really make this whole relationship inverse to what it is right now. I do agree. I think the top-down approach is it needs to change. And also agree with you that 
it's not as much as looking at the numbers that's a problem i think it's the messaging also on how we communicate that saying for example we had this discussion at home where varun was saying you'll be so proud of me if i get into an ivy league school or something like i don't need an admissions letter from an ivy league school to be proud of you i will be proud of you regardless whether you go to community college or don't go to college or not i think if we can do a better job as educators and parents and students to say my worth or my position in the universe is not defined by my test scores or my admissions letter or my degree i think that will change it is that what you're thinking in terms of self awareness if you will that's been the biggest issue i've seen with students and my biggest concern to be honest with you because here's what we've done as parents educators and just society in general to our students at a very young age because we are valuing the way we've talked to our students is you're so smart you did that so fast you got the a and we're praising in a way that by the time these kids are you know late elementary school they're identified self-identified as I'm a smart kid. I'm one of the smartest kids in my class. And these kids, especially the bright kids who don't have to put in a lot of effort, so they're the kids who, you know, can get their homework done in class or the bus and you know don't need to study for tests and can still crank out some good grades. Those kids don't put in effort. They don't need to put in effort until and what i see and what and how these kids disintegrate is they hit a rigor tipping point so at some point you know whether it's in you know middle school or high school or even into college or graduate school at some point you hit so much rigor and have so many responsibilities and if you do not have the skills and strategies to back that up which so many of our bright kids don't because they've always been able to compensate they've been smart yeah. enough to get by but i think that is where it's not on the students though i think that is where parents need more education than students because a lot of times if a student comes home and cries they're like stop crying if the student gets angry they're like well i made you dinner why are you angry at me you know i think that's where i was going back to jordan's episode where he talks about jordan shapiro talks about when we are sitting in our office work from homes and if a kid comes running into our room and says you know daddy or mommy i'm hungry and eat a sandwich i'm like wait i'm working here you know can't you see it and his message was we're all authors of our own story we're all heroes in our story but we don't really understand that they're also heroes in their story and they're also authors in their story and i feel like you know at least from maybe i'm being a first generation immigrant because i was not born here so i did not have the tools to become a better parent i had to learn it with my own things but most of the i'm pretty sure most parents struggle with that where they have their work they have their struggles and they see a kid who's unhappy and they just want them to be happy they they see a kid that's angry and they just want him to stop being angry without really doing anything to solve it so what can we do better to help parents become better emotional counselors if you will is that what yeah. you do in balance yeah students? so much so much so and i dedicate a lot of the book to this there's a whole chapter for parents there's actually a couple chapters for parents that really deal with this because first of all we are so well intentioned i mean you know this i know this we love our kids it is 
so painful to watch our kids struggle with disappointment, to make mistakes and fail. And our well-intentioned love combined with the intense fear that comes with the achievement culture of them not, you know, when they do fail or make a mistake, we oftentimes do things that we think is being helpful that are not. So some of the things we do as parents is we help more than our children want or need us to. So by overhelping, you know, jumping in to alleviate their anxiety or just, you know, to to make sure all the things get done that need to get done so there are no negative consequences. When we do that, we're we're doing a couple of things. First of all, we're we're not allowing them to develop their own competencies, which will come back and get them. And also not letting them fail is setting them for failure because we all have to fail eventually. <laughs> we do. We need to get good at it and get our, you know, get that resilient skin built up on, especially by the time our kids, we don't want to be sending kids off to college. And that's where they have their first like real hard experiences with that. And that's detrimental for a parent and for a student. It's harder to bounce back from. And the other message that we're sending to our kids when we help too much is that they can't handle it. So we're raising kind of a younger generation of kids. I mean, I look at 15-year-olds and they seem more like 13-year-olds and 18-year-olds seem more like 15-year-olds to me. And I'm sure you're just talking about boys. I'm just (laughs) kidding. (laughs) No. I'm not going there. (laughs) But I I do think, you know, when when a kid gets that message over and over again, they one of two things happens. They start to think, well, maybe I just can't handle it. Or they think, well, somebody else is going to handle it. And you get sort of that entitled sensibility in our kids. And we, neither one are going to be helpful to them. So there, you know, there's just a lot of stuff in the parenting side of things. You know, we're responding to this culture, Mm -hmm. but we do have control over some things. And I won't even try to sugarcoat it. It's super hard. It is super hard to walk the walk of like, I'm going to let my kid you know, fail here. I'm not going to run in and rescue. I'm not going to try to, you know, do all the things that with the teachers or the counselors to make it perfect for them. I'm going to let them learn and learn the hard way. I mean, oh my goodness, probably the hardest thing we do as a parent. Yeah. In your therapist role, have you seen that again, not to be stereotypical, is that a more of a problem for male parents or female parents or single parents, because I'll kind of walk about my own personal experience. I'm a single parent. My son lives with me and my daughters, at least over the last year, is living with her mom. Whenever Varun comes back home with a problem and he wants to talk about it. And I, I've done enough my own self-coaching where I listen. And for the most part, all I say is, how can I help? And maybe if I have to do more, I'll probably say things like, you'll be fine. I have full confidence in you. Those are the only three sentences I use. (laughs) But his response every time I say, how can I help? Is like, no, you can't help me. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And he doesn't say it in a rude way. Well, maybe he does say in a rude way, but he doesn't mean it in a rude way. He just says, I have to do it myself. That's all I can do, especially when they're a senior, because at this point, I can't help him with advanced calculus. I can't help him with Spanish. Hell, I can't even help him with physics. But by offering an assistance, I've 
kind of letting him know that he's on his own. But you did two things there. And one in particular is you start off by saying, I listen. And I think when this is what I tell parents, it's like, okay, so I'm going to give you the secret sauce to like a better relationship with your kid, being more helpful to your child, being more connected. And the secret sauce is listening. That is actually what they want. And that is actually what is helpful to them. So, I mean, oftentimes, and I have this experience, my youngest is one of those, like, come home and just like, (laughs) here's all the bad stuff, you know, and I'm a problem solver. That's my job. That's what I do. And so my go-to would be like, well, did you try this? Or you need to say this. And I have all the you know, wisdom of my 57 year old brain, just dumping right out on her, just no problem. Right. And she doesn't want any of it. (laughs) No, man, it is talk to the hand time. She does not like that at all. And we figured that out luckily pretty early on in late middle school, early high school. And so our agreement was, okay, this is my nature and I'm going to try my best not to do that. You tell me when I do. And that's communication. And I didn't get mad at her when she told me, she'd be like, mom, I just want you to listen. I'd be like, oh, sorry. And I could do that. And it made all the difference in the world. My daughter and I are so close right now. She tells me more than I want to know about what's going on in her life. (laughs) But at the same time- That's a good thing, trust me. It is a good thing, but you have to listen with empathy and curiosity and less judgment. You know, again, that fear can seep in and they say something in your life, but you need to, or you should. And that might be true, but it is not helpful and it does not grow connection between a parent and a child. And I'd say the same goes true for educators too. Right. If they can listen with that empathy and curiosity to their students, which I mean, I hate to ask educators to do anything right now, but <laughs> that would go a long way in kind of building kind of that connection in the classroom too. That's why I started my previous question with the preface saying, is it a stereotypical patriarchal man problem or stereotypical matriarchal women problem? Again, there's a broad stroke there. People are of all dimensions. I always thought that men have the natural tendency. If you read the book, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Again, that's kind of a basic, you know, sexist stereotyping in any way. But the author's thesis was, men are problem solvers and women are communicators. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. sometimes you just want to listen. Sometimes they just want to be heard. And sometimes men just want to solve. And in, according to the thesis, they just want the women to shut up and go to something else. Again, yeah. that's not true. I don't subscribe to that. But the question is, are women parents better than men parents in terms of listening? Or are you guys just as... Do everybody need help? That's a a question. I think we all need help. And I think what it is more than gender, it's comfort with vulnerability. There's social roles around parenting where stereotypically the the mother is responsible for the, you know, the school stuff. So oftentimes, and I see, I see the reverse, but oftentimes, you know, making sure the kid is doing all the things and keeping up with the grades and talking to the teachers falls to the female parent, but it doesn't have to. I think that's just a social role we've had for many, many decades. I think what matters when we talk about communication is how comfortable as an individual 
with being vulnerable. So as a parent, the vulnerability plays a role because you have to be like, I'm really scared when this consequence is looming out there. This is what worries me and keeps me up at night. I'm not sure what to do here. I don't have all the answers. And when we can show our own vulnerability, it helps connect us with our kids because if we're trying to be perfect, quote unquote, perfect and have it all together and hide any flaws or stressors from our kids, first of all, we're not teaching them good coping because they're, they learn everything by just watching us. So we're not modeling that. And second of all, we're saying perfect is necessary and we're fostering perfectionism in our kids, which is disastrous because these are the kids where they can't ever reach, you know, a lot of times it's self-imposed, but even so, you know, if you've got a kid who self-imposes, like, I'm just going to get, you know, all A's and all high A's, that's their, their standard, you know, and they're taking four APs and, you know, in all the clubs and sports and a parent goes in just, I just want you to do your best. What a nice thing for a parent to say, because I, as a parent, I know when I've said that, that just means I want you to put in effort. I want you to try and whatever happens, I still love you and accept you. Okay. So that's what's in my head. Here's what's in a perfectionistic kid's head when they hear a parent say, I want you to do your best. I want you to do it perfectly. And the kid can't. And so this is why you see those perfectionistic kids procrastinating and procrastinating because they really are fearful that they cannot reach those standards. So there's a lot of compassion and empathy and vulnerability that we, we really need to foster in our families to basically buffer ourselves from this high stakes, high pressure achievement culture we're all in. You're hitting all the right points. Number one, I think I hear the stories about a Stanford student who was seeking out her father's help when she has trouble solving some Stanford problems. Her father is a genius in physics. She was actually a guest on my podcast. And here I am, like, I can't even solve a (laughs) junior level math problem for my kids. But as I started thinking about it, I feel actually good with that because it allows me to say, you know, all I say is I don't really know how to solve this problem. I can learn on it with you on Khan Academy. Maybe we can do it together. And immediately it actually de-shields them from saying, yeah, there's another idiot that doesn't know how to do this. So I guess it's not that bad. Absolutely. (laughs) I guess that's what the vulnerability is. It allows us to be human. And I think more parents show the human side of it. It allows our kids to say, it's okay to not know. It's okay to learn it from somewhere else. It's okay that we're struggling too. Is that kind of the structure you're talking about? Yeah. And if we get back to that, then our achievement culture can go back to valuing things like curiosity and lifelong learning. And we're losing that. And I really hope that that's on our horizon that we. Yeah, because I think you you talk about in in the book, right? Because I, again, I kind of perused it and saw some of the high level notes you put in because in the disintegrating student, you really help parents and students, hopefully, learn how to build trust, motivate, and encourage responsibility and problem solving by making it empowering and engaging. The the disintegrating student will show you how to help your child embrace what's going right, 
address what's going wrong and develop the skills needed for success in school and life. Because I think that's the part that I like the most because there's a lot of discussion about, oh, you know, we don't really need education. We don't really need higher education. We don't really need K through 12 because who remembers what we were taught in high school or college? And that's their thesis. For me, the power of K through 16 or K through 18 education is not really about what you learn, but it's really the concept of building up yourself in school to prepare you for life. So I like the way you're thinking about building trust, motivating and encouraging and building responsibility for students. Because if you build a responsible student, you're building a responsible citizen. If you're building a responsible learner or disciplined learner, you're building a disciplined workforce. Is that the linkage here from you when you say success in school and life? Madeline Levine has a book out right now called Ready or Not, and it's really looking at sort of the 21st century kinds of skills that are going to be needed in our workforce and how we are actually educating against those quote unquote soft skills, you know, things Mm -hmm. like being adaptable. Oh, my goodness. What a trait to walk into the workforce was to be adaptable and flexible and a critical thinker and think outside the box and all those things. That's the exact opposite of how we're raising and educating our kids right Right. now. I mean, as far as the end result. yeah. And being a leader, for example, if you look at a standard educational institution, you are taught to be submissive for the most part. If a teacher tells you something, shut up and do it. Or even if you feel like teacher or instructor has said something wrong or incorrect, you don't correct them. You basically listen. And if for some reason, some student stands up and says, you know, this is not right. I don't agree with that. You're expelled from class or you have get an in-school suspension or out-of-school suspension, depending on your egregious behavior, they call it. But if you think about it, leadership all comes from out-of-the-box thinking, standing up for what you believe in, and also openly questioning the status quo. Going back to the pro-con-pro approach, if you will let everybody just like start questioning everything, then how can a teacher run the classroom? I understand the logistics of it, but how do you balance it? How do you balance building a leadership and also keeping some discipline in the classroom? I think we need to get away from this check the box mentality and reality, actually. So it's the meetings you have, you're probably going through this with your sons, who's a junior, you know, the junior year meeting where it's like making sure you've checked all the boxes and you're getting ready to check the last boxes so that you meet the requirements for graduation and meet the requirements of the colleges you're applying to. This is 100% how our kids are approaching education. I just need to do what I need to do. No more, no less. I just, I need to do, you know, depending on what their ultimate goal is, they may have more boxes and bigger boxes and more difficult boxes to check, but it is check the box. And that is coming from grading and the importance of grades, the importance of grades as far as teacher compensation, school ratings and rankings, and all this data that isn't really telling us anything about student learning. I think what we know is student learning is probably going down as a result of, you know, 
checking boxes about student learning. So I would love to see our, and I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't think anything in education is, there's not going to be anything happening quickly. It's glacially slow. It's like turning a cruise ship. But I do feel like there's more conversations about what we can do differently without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, we know how to educate kids. We just, we have to really pay more attention to what is our goal and Mm. what are we actually accomplishing here. And so things like looking at grading, you know, if we want to bring back learning, we need to bring back something like mastery. And Mm -hmm. that's not getting an A on a test. That's fairly meaningless these days, right. as, you know, except for check the box. But doing, you know, more project-based learning, having pass, not pass options, all those kinds of things, I just think, oh my gosh, it would just light a spark in our students and it would decrease the anxieties in families around education. I hope we get to something like that. I mean, I'm not an expert in this area. I just know it's not working. I certainly would hope that people are more open to, because it's, you know, it's hard to change a culture. I mean, I think going back to the, one of the questions we talked about before, where if you make it truly a GPS, just more like pass, no pass option, instead of making it a cohort based, you're 16 years old. By the way, my son is a senior. We're oh, 16 sorry. years old. It's fine. You're a sophomore. You're 17 years old, junior. You're 18 years old, senior. Like you're making it cohort based. Students are learning at their own pace, whether they take 18 years to do it or 16 years to do it or 25 years. It should not matter. And having a pass, no pass option would be good. And as far as the college admissions process goes, you know, except for few, there's only 10% of the schools that are so highly selective that they get 300% more than admissions pool of applications. There's probably less than 10% of those. Most of the schools can afford to hire or admit every student that applies with some basic broad measure. So I agree. Having a pass, no pass measure would work just fine. If anything, it will force the colleges to be less lazy about their admissions process and be more holistic in their admissions process. Yep, so I hope, up. <laughs> yeah, I hope somebody is listening. Tell me about you, because I know you've committed yourself to psychology and balanced student, I believe, the LLC, committing yourself to students, learners, parents and their growth. What drives you? What made you come to yourself in this direction? I have a heart for students. Like I said, when I had that bird's eye view and especially watching my own children and their friends struggle, it just wasn't okay with me. And I could see when I was teaching college that if I, if they just had some information. So these young people as college freshmen didn't really understand much about their brain, didn't really understand about time management, didn't have a lot of good study skills or habits, didn't understand the impact and importance of sleep, especially as it pertains to learning. And just a little kernel of information here and there, they'd be like, oh my gosh, I wish somebody would have told me that when I was in high school. And so my passion became on whatever scale I can, I want to help these students. As I've done that, I expanded to write the book because not everybody can afford an academic coach, but hopefully everybody could afford to, you know, maybe get, you know, a $12 book and be able to read about what's going on. And, you know, the whole last chapter of the book is 77 tips to be productive and well. And they're kind of my 
big coaching tips that I that I sure. I have found so useful with students and that have kind of turned things around for them. So my passion is just, you know, honestly, I would give up the book, I would give up my coaching, I would give up all of it if we could just make it better for students. I, mm-hmm. I don't want to be doing this. I don't want to be having this conversation because, you know, it's on the backs of our students and families and teachers. And I, that's, my passion is for that not to be the case. I applaud you for your passion, your courage, and obviously your authorship. I'm intrigued about the 77 tips. Can you give top five tips? And if you have any specific anecdotal evidence, obviously you don't have to name names of the students, but if you're comfortable doing so, can you name like your top three tips that every student or parent should pursue? And if there are any examples of how students have benefited from that using your own experience in the therapy or psychology front. Well, sure. I mean, as far as the 77 tips go, when I was talking about the disintegrating student, I realized they had skill deficits and counterproductive behaviors in seven areas. And it's time management, organization, their mindset around school, sleep screens and stress. And what am I forgetting? Oh, study skills and study habits. So the the tips are actually divided into those sections. But where I almost always have to start, there's two places I start with students. One is time management, because whether they're, you know, middle school student or high school student or college student, they always come to me with no time management system, at least not an effective one. And I work with a lot of students who have ADHD or executive functioning weaknesses. So again, definitely need a time management system. So I teach a very, very simple, like, I don't think there's anything more simple than the master calendar pocket schedule combo I teach them, which is, it's pretty straightforward. They keep a calendar for themselves, a monthly calendar with kind of big things on it, and they can color code it if they want. And then they keep a little piece of paper in their pocket each day to, with a, you know, line on one side, line down the middle and one side says today and one side says later. And they basically want to make a quick to-do list for the day. What do you want to accomplish today? And that later side in their pocket is for like in class when the teacher says, hey, don't forget, or don't, you know, you need to do this, or the test has been changed or whatever information they would normally say, oh, I have to remember that. They don't remember it. So they pull it out very quickly, scribble it on that later side, put it in, and then they go home and they can see, did I do what I needed to do today? If not, what do I do with that? Did anything else come up today? What do I need to do with that? Do I do it now? Does it go on my master calendar? And it's this And it's training their brains to think, plan, prioritize. And it's a process, but it's much more successful than things like an agenda where they have to find it in their backpack, find the page to open it up to, remember to open it up again at home. So that tends not to work for the majority of our students for those reasons. So this is a system that's kind of quick and dirty and works pretty well for them. The time management definitely is something that doesn't come naturally to kids at their age, but kids who get it, they get it. They get into the habit of being able to prioritize, organize, and execute in that fashion. You know, again, they're still teenagers, so there's a lot right. going on in their lives. So I understand that that's not how executive function. 
Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, skill. a skill that needs but it's to be also, developed for most kids. But, yeah, but it's also a habit. You know, it's something that you got to work towards. Going back to Varun, he definitely struggled with that in middle school, but now. You know, he is almost precise in which he attacks on things. He basically knows exactly what's due tomorrow, exactly what's due at 9 a.m. and what's due at 3 p.m. And he pursues that. But it doesn't happen overnight. It is something you have to work towards. And I agree with you on that as being one of the best habits. If anything, I always make a case for education exactly about that saying, if not for education, you know, if we were all like a bunch of animals living in a jungle, I don't think we would ever get to a point where if somebody wants to build a treehouse, we will be able to build a treehouse when we become adult because we just don't know where to start and right, what the next right. steps are. We need a plan. <laughs> exactly. So as we come to the end of it, and I want to hear what you think based on your book and based on your own personal experience with teachers and parents and students, where do you see campuses going? Or more importantly, where would you like the campuses or schools to go to build a more integrated student, which is obviously better than disintegrated student? Oh, yes, that would be great. Well, I think hybrid's here to stay. And I think with that, you know, I think it's here to stay across the grade levels. It's kind of baked in the cake now, which I think is good because what it says is we're becoming more open to being flexible. And I think that's going to be our key over the next five years or so is how much flexibility can we start to build into the culture and, you know, things that work will take hold and hopefully we'll start to turn that the ship around, you know, maybe we'll see considering the job market and considering, you know, how many people are choosing differently around careers. It'll be really interesting to see what happens to college enrollments over the coming years. Well, students, I mean, it's always been the mentality for the last couple of decades. You want a job, you need to get that college degree. I'm curious to see what impact today's job market is going to have on students' decisions to go right from high school into college. I have no prediction there, but I think it's an interesting question considering our time in this world right now. Sure. Well, let's hope that that trend continues. And again, Dr. Jeanine Jeannot, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your book. Thank you so much for committing yourself to students, learners, or parents. Um, you know, books like these truly change higher education and illuminate higher education for whether it's a learner in elementary school or middle school or high school. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. I enjoyed our conversation. The listeners will post the show notes with the book information and other contact information for Dr. Janine Janot. And thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Illuminate Higher Education, sponsored by End-to-End Services and our Illuminate app. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network. You can learn more about Illuminate app at illuminateapp.com and continue the conversation with us there. If there are any topics you'd like us to discuss further, please email them to us at podcast at n2nservices.com. That's podcast at n2nservices.com.
www.sarvices.com. Thank you.